Hello, and thank you for joining this episode of Global Perspectives, a Janice Henderson podcast created to share the insights from our investment professionals and the implications that they have for investors. I'm your host for the day, Laura Castleton, head of U.S. Portfolio Construction and Strategy. A few weeks ago, I took a deep dive into the entire fixed income market in today's landscape with the head of our U.S. Fixed Income Strategy, Seth Meyer, and Portfolio Manager, John Lloyd. Today, we're going to dissect the securitized subset of the market with John Kirshner and Nick Childs. John is the head of our U.S. Securitized Products at Janice Henderson and Portfolio Manager, and Nick Child is Portfolio Manager on our Securitized Credit Team. Gentlemen, thank you for being here. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having us. So securitized, what is it? John, besides (laughs) just the sector that wins the trophy for the most acronyms out there. Can <laughs> you give us just that. a brief history for lesson, for our listeners here today? What is securitized, history of, et cetera? Yeah, surely. Um, so we're talking about bonds, and there are basically three major types of bonds. So first, government bonds. That's pretty self-explanatory. Governments tend to spend more than they take in taxes. They have to borrow the rest. So in U.S., we have about $24 trillion. Uh, which is an incredible lot, but uh, about $24 trillion of, of Treasury securities. Then you have corporate debt. Most big companies issue bonds in order to finance acquisitions or new plants and equipment, things like that. That's about $10, billion, or $10 trillion. And then pretty much everything else falls under the securitized umbrella. Um, securitized includes mortgages, commercial mortgages, so commercial real estate, asset-backed securities, which can be everything from autos to credit cards to student loans to all sorts of other things, um, timeshares, shipping containers, data centers, fast food franchises, anything with a cash flow that can kind of be uh, quantified and put a securitization will fall under ABS. And then finally, not least, um, last but not least, our CLOs, which are collateralized loan obligations. Those are taking corporate loans and put them in a securitization. All of securitization is about $15 trillion, so about 50% more than actually corporate debt. And the kind of the overriding theme besides the acronyms is basically taking a pool of loans. So mortgages, you're just taking you know, mortgage loans, uh, asset-backed loans, let's just say you're taking a bunch of auto loans, CMBS, you're taking a bunch of commercial real estate loans, CLOs, uh, corporate credit loans, and you're basically putting them into a securitization that just means you're aggregating these loans, you're getting a rating agency to put a rating on it, there's a bunch of legalese that goes around it as far as rules, and all those cash flows from that pool of loans then get divided up into different layers of risk. Sometimes they're called tranches, we'll just say layers, and then that those different layers of risk are sold to people like Janice Henderson. And so you can have anything from AAA, obviously lowest risk, usually lowest amount of yield or income, all the way down to single B or even what they call an equity or residual tranche, which can be similar type risk return to equities. Um, Securitization's actually been around a lot longer than people think. Mortgages have been around since the early 70s. Um, CMBS came about after the SNL crisis um, back in the early 90s. 
Uh, CLOs and ABS also kind of late 80s, early 90s. So we're talking 30, 35 years. Um, for mortgages, it's closer to 50 years. So been around for a long time. Um, but I started my career investment management in the mid 90s, kind of right at the start and still here today. So Okay, so a lot of our listeners probably remember 2008, and then they go back to that and they think about that point in time as scary. So I think throughout the rest of this time, I'd like to demystify a lot of that as we talk about some of these sectors. Sectors you already talked about. This, these sectors have a lot more history than maybe we remember. They're all they have their different underlying capabilities, opportunities. So I want to dive into those more granularly, and that's your challenge for today, okay. Nick. Before we get into specific sectors, let's just level set what has broadly happened in the securitized market. 2022 was not a great year, um, year of the great re rate reset. How did securitized overall fare during that time? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, you know, I'd separate securitized into two major asset classes. So agency mortgages, these are government guaranteed. Um, you're looking around nine trillion in size, so a very, very large market. And then what we would bucket securitized credit. So this is the asset-backed securities, commercial securities, et cetera. As far as agency mortgages are concerned, um, these are longer duration in nature, um, and pretty much everything went wrong in the agency mortgage market, uh, both from a macro perspective as well as from a supply demand technical perspective. Uh, from a macro perspective, everybody knows kind of the, the movement in interest rates, the movement in volatility, all of this is hugely negative for mortgages and you're talking around, you know, six years of, of interest rate risk. So um, huge, you know, drawdowns, uh, particularly relative to his history and from an excess return perspective or kind of how mortgages fared versus treasuries even worse. Uh, from a supply demand perspective, you have to realize we were undergoing quantitative tightening. So the Fed was no longer buying mortgages. We had um, uh, banks, insurance companies, um, all not buying mortgages as, as we moved higher in rate. So this is a very institutional product, as you can kind of see. You know, lastly, money managers, right? Money managers, given the rate move uh, in fixed income, saw the worst outflows since, since, uh, since the global financial crisis. As far as securitized credit goes, securitized credits performed incredibly well from an absolute return standpoint. Um, securitized credit, again, so asset-backed securities, CLOs, collateralized loan obligations, our, our, our securities, our bonds, tend to be short-term in nature. And what does that mean? Well, that means we have lower interest rate risk. So into the higher rate move, um, given that it's mostly a short duration asset, it's performed really, really well. That said, kind of the, 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 the tail end of that is the supply demand technicals and securitized credit while nowhere near um, as abundant as agency mortgages has been pretty similar. Um, so a lot of supply relative to corporate credit has kind of hurt spreads uh, from a relative basis. And while in a, from an absolute return basis, they perform quite poorly, when you look at them in a relative value sense versus corporate credit or other areas, they look incredibly cheap. And you know, when you look at general kind of expected total returns, as well as kind of certainty of total returns, that short duration asset with really high yield levels today um, seems incredibly attractive. So is it safe to say then that the securitized credit on the short end of the curve held up relatively well, MBS maybe not as much, but relative to just investment grade or high yield credit markets, how did they fare from a spread perspective? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the reality is high yields actually perform incredibly well. You know, when you think about the high yield market in terms of probability and, and forecasting recession, high yield, you know, doesn't really see a recession coming. When you look at securitized credit, on the other hand, um, our space is definitely uh, pricing in more of a hard landing, um, which makes it which makes it great from a relative value perspective. If auto loans are being created, or credit cards are being created, or or, or people are buying homes, we have supply. In high yield or corporate credit, uh, institutions and corporations can decide kind of when to issue, why to issue, et cetera. And when you kind of rewind the clock, right, corporate debt has been pushed out and termed out. So through that 2022 and into 2023 period, uh, there was a lot of choices and decisions that where corporations didn't have to issue uh, credit and otherwise issue debt or put supply into the market. Very different than our marketplace. Can I just add to that? Um, one other point is that when COVID happened, the Fed came out and basically said, yes, we're going to support U.S. Treasuries and mortgages. And they bought all these mortgages and treasuries as part of quantitative tightening. But then they also came out and said, we're going to support the corporate credit markets. We'll actually buy investment-grade corporate credit. We'll buy ETFs of high-yield corporate credit. That gave every corporation in the U.S. a green light to issue as much as they could because they knew either investors will buy it or the Fed will buy it. So basically, investors said, well, I'm going to buy it because I know I have a Fed backstop. The Fed absolutely did zero for the securitized markets. And if I ever meet Jay Powell, that's the <laughs> first question I'm going to ask him. Why did you not do anything for securitized? So what you had is all these corporations issuing debt, five, seven, ten years. That's just becoming due in the next few years. But over the last couple of years, very few corporations have had to issue in large amounts. I'm not saying zero, but the technical in securitized has been much worse, as, as Nick said. A lot more supply. You know, good demand as well, but but much less supply in the corporate credit markets. Interesting. Exactly. And speaking of Powell, it <clears throat> seems that the Fed is nearing the end of its rate hiking cycle. Market is pricing in cuts in the latter half of 2024. John, what do you think? Is that on pace? And how do you securitize assets potentially fare in this environment? Yeah, it's a <clears throat> thing that people are really thinking a lot about right now, because we all know the Fed is is close to done, but are they done and what's the next move? And I actually have this quote here from our Treasury Secretary, uh, Janet Yellen, which says, I think the most likely outcome is that the economy will move forward towards a soft landing. Now, she said that in October. That's October 2007, not October 2023. So why do I, I give you that quote? Because it's very hard to really predict these things, right? I mean, here's someone who at the time, she, Janet Yellen was um, head of the, uh, the um, bank in, in, Fed Bank in San Francisco, and she's, you know, should be one of the foremost experts on what's happening to the economy, and she got it completely wrong. Um, so it is very difficult to really know what's going to happen. And, you know, rates have been selling off, and look what happened. All of a sudden, we have this tragedy over in Israel, and rates are rallying hard today. And so... Getting this exactly right is difficult. But what I will tell you is if you listen to the Fed, they are saying they're going to be higher for longer. And why is that? Because the Fed, and particularly Jay Powell, the chair, is very incentivized to wipe out inflation. Chair Powell is done May of 2026. 
he will not have another term. So he is less than, he's basically less than two and a half years away. And the last thing he wants is to leave with inflation still being a problem. He wants to stomp out inflation. And if you think about it right now, because the Fed has a dual ma mandate, stable prices and low unemployment, um, he has cover for that because unemployment is incredibly low at 3.8%. So he can keep rates up you know, quite, a bit, quite a bit longer because unemployment looks to be in, in really good shape. And so if un unemployment got up to 4.2 or 4.5, that's still pretty historically low. And then one other factor that a lot of people aren't talking about is that we have a presidential election next year. And the Fed is supposedly apolitical. I get that. But they do not want to be seen as affecting an election. So it's very difficult to see the Fed coming out and cutting rates in June next year, in July next year, in September next year, right before an election. Maybe they cut once if things slow down, um, you know, in the June, July. But I don't think there are going to be a lot of cuts uh, next year. Right now, the market has priced in about four cuts. The Fed's telling us, as of the last meeting, that they're expecting two cuts. I would say two cuts at the most, um, maybe one in the middle of the year and then one after the election. But I can very easily see, based on how strong economic data has been, that they don't cut at all or maybe they cut once in December of next year. And so what does that mean for investors? One is things that are at the short end of the yield curve one year, two year, three years, which is most of securitized, is going to continue to have a very high rate of interest and carry and yield. And that's very good for investors because you're not taking all that interest rate risk and yet you're still getting all that income and yield. Interesting. Okay, so setting up a good backdrop in terms of where we are today. Thank you both for that. So let's dive a little bit more specific into the subsector. So Nick, agency mortgage-backed securities, that's one of the maybe more interest rate sensitive subsectors. You mentioned a lot of the potential headwinds that have faced that sector, massive rate hikes, QE to QT. Do you at some point start to see those becoming tailwinds or what is the sector opportunity in agency mortgages going forward? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the starting point for agency mortgages have, has never been as, you know, Positive, I suppose. Uh, you know, it is an interest rates sector, as you mentioned. So the higher rates go, the the, the higher the hurdle is for total returns, etc. But you know, one of the great things about mortgages is I and, and just generally fixed income. I think you know investors should be at least considering adding more interest rate risk to their portfolio and kind of locking these forward total returns in. Additionally, given where mortgage spreads are today and, and kind of given what we're seeing historically, you know, spreads at least seem to have reached kind of the wide levels. So that drawdown from a spread perspective, we believe is over. Um, so, you know, I think what's what's great about that is you, you can wait a bit, right? You know, carry is your friend in fixed income. The tailwinds is a change in either is the change in kind of the demand factor. Um, supply continues to, to, to uh, move lower and lower. Um, supply in mortgages is, is purely a function of home sales for the most part, uh, particularly in an environment where the majority of bars don't have an opportunity to refinance. So given home sales is low, supplies, supplies continues to go down. Uh, on the demand side, not a lot needs to happen or change to really um, to pick up the demand for mortgages or to tighten spreads. Uh, examples of that would be banks uh, coming back to the market. 
Uh, I do think banks come back to the market next year. You know, look, net interest margins continue to be pressured. Uh, they're going to need to add to their securities portfolio portfolios, and, and regulations are actually quite positive for banks adding in mortgages. Um, overseas, the demand has been terrible given what's gone on in the dollar and the, vol the volatility there. That could easily add to the demand factor. And, you know, look, as, as rates stabilize, and as we've seen typically after the Fed's done its final hike, further demand comes to the fixed income market, simply positive fixed income flows and mutual funds and ETFs are all positive for mortgages. So. Well, and so the other thing is with mortgages, one of the bigger risks in that sector is prepayment risk. And obviously right. all of us are sitting here today having potentially hopefully locked in that low, <laughs> hopefully low market yeah. rate in 2020. And so now that is we're facing almost 8% at this point in time. So right. that is another... Yeah, no, you bring then. a great point. It's it's very counterintuitive. In agency mortgages, there is no credit risk. This is government guaranteed. So your risk is a refi wave. That's your biggest risk. Um, and we're obviously incredibly far away from a refinancing wave. Um, and what's so counterintuitive is the fact that agency mortgages are at kind of their cheapest level in history, you know, give it a couple different bouts, but yet the fundamental risk is kind of at all time lows. So yeah, it's it's an interesting phenomenon. Okay. Yeah. Oh, thank you. So, and for investors in portfolios, I always talk about adding duration. We talked about that with Seth and John a couple of weeks ago, the opportunity to add duration at the end of a Fed hiking cycle. And if you think of just the core index ag being made up of treasuries, credit, mortgages, mm -hmm. it does seem like the technicals, fundamentals, opportunity in mortgages is a great way for investors to get some good capital preservation ballast in their portfolio, um, maybe potentially be overweighted that sector over some of the others. So, John, let's go to you and dive into a different sector. You had mentioned collateralized loan obligations. This is where the scary part comes in. <laughs> um, different than what we were thinking yes. about a couple of years ago in 2008. But can you dive into that sector and the opportunities ahead? Yeah. And it's funny. I think most people have that scare factor because they don't understand a certain product. And so obviously what we're here today is to uh, educate our uh, listeners and viewers into some of these products. But CLOs, collateralized loan obligations, like I said, are just like any other securitization, auto loans, credit card loans, mortgage loans, where you're taking a pool of loans. These are from corporations. Usually they go to the leverage loan market um, because they're either smaller or newer, or they just haven't been around long enough to tap the normal high yield market. But sometimes they just want to issue floating rate debt because maybe um, they think rates are going to go down. Now, the leverage loan market is floating, um, and because of that, CLOs are all floating. So what does that mean? Most bonds are, have a fixed coupon. So like you buy, go out and buy a treasury right now, Let's just say you get a 5% uh, type coupon. You will get that for, let's just say, 10 years. It's paid every six months. And then at the end, you get your principal. Floating rate debt, obviously, as the name implies, as rates move up and down, and in this case, it's something called the SOFR uh, rate, but just think of it as a very short-term uh, risk-free rate that moves one and one with the Fed funds rate, um, as that moves up and down, your coupon will change. So let's just take <laughs> last year, for example, or where rates were going up a lot. Basically, CLOs on the AAA level went from a couple percent of yield uh, till today, they're about six, six and a half percent. 
And that's just a function of the Fed raising rates, the SOFR rate going up, and then the CLO rate going up. So that's very, very powerful, particularly in periods like this where rates are going up. Most fixed income has not done that well because when rates go up, your bond prices have to go down to equilibrate that. But floating rate debt, just the opposite. As rates go up, you actually get more coupon and the price basically stays about the same, give or take. So... Why is it important? Portfolios are all about diversification. So you can diversify different asset types, equities versus bonds, different classes within bonds. But having fixed versus floating in your fixed income portfolio is great because, again, we don't really know if rates are going to go up or down or if the Fed's going to cut or maybe they were going to raise some more. But we do know because when rates go up, you have something in your portfolio that's actually doing well. And the nice thing about CLOs as well, we talked about these layers of risks or tranches. You can go AAA, AA, single A, triple B, all the way down. So if you want more yield, you can go down the capital stack a little bit. Obviously, it comes with more risk. But if you just want a AAA security, has some volatility, but not a whole lot, you're still getting about 6.5% right now, which is really, really... Um, Attractive, particularly given that inflation is only about three and a half to four percent, and and then finally, these are just very, very default re, uh, remote. That a triple A CLO has never defaulted, and even at the triple B level, you got to think about something that's three or four times worse than what happened in the GFC for those to take a default. Okay, and that's interesting because 2008, you said they never had a default, so it's not like a CDO type structure where. 2008 or something like that, we we actually saw CLOs hold up. Yeah, and just to be clear, leverage loans slash bank loans, same thing. Just two different <laughs> names for the same thing. Um, used to be banks that made a lot of these loans, so uh, they, some people still call them bank loans. But right, um, a lot of people think CLOs are you know cousins to CDOs. You know, one letter different. CDOs that were issued back in you know the mid 2000s were made were basically loans of subprime mortgages and and anybody that was around back then kind of knows all the horror stories basically people getting loans that should have never had them very low credit quality and so whatever you make out of something that is basically should have never you know that was fraught from the get go and was had a high pension default as soon as home price appreciation went from you know, basically zero down to negative 30%, which nobody thought was going to happen, the CDOs just did not perform well. CLOs, on the other hand, like you said, made from bank, bank loans or leverage loans, very long track record, rating agencies, very well calibrated as to what uh, those defaults would look like, even in, you know, huge dislocations like the GFC. And that's why CLOs perform so well. Yeah. So, okay. So for investors, CLOs can be that nice way to upgrade credit quality, maintain some of that floating rate exposure in a higher for longer interest rate environment, that just pure diversification from generally fixed income structures is a nice add to, to portfolios. Exactly. Potentially. So going into, we talked about mortgages, but maybe one of the bigger controversial topics within the securitized market today is commercial mortgage-backed securities. So all the headlines around real estate, commercial real estate, Nick, Talk about the CMBS market today and what we are seeing. Are we as scared about it as the market <laughs> headlines would suggest? I'd say out of all of the securitized credit, as I kind of mentioned, so ex-agency mortgages, um, CMBS has underperformed uh, the rest of securitized credit. I'd say some for the right reasons, right? Uh, clearly, there's a there's a concern around office space. 
um, post COVID and the change in work work life environment. Um, but you know, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, one of the difference is I think around commercial real estate or CMBS commercial backed securities, um, is the fact that there is a lot of idiosyncratic risk. Typically in securitized products, you, you bundle, you know, thousands of loans, let's say, and then you tranche that as, as, as John was mentioning to get different risk profiles. In commercial real estate, it's it's much more idiosyncratic. Commercial real estate, I think, is right now, at least media-wise, synonymous with office space. That's not what all commercial real estate is. So commercial real estate is multifamily units, uh, so apartment complexes, et cetera, industrial properties, data centers, right? Think Amazon, hotels, retail, office. Go back five or six years ago, and it was all about malls, right? And how we had way too many malls, and they're all going away. People still, even five or six years later, say, oh, it's a mall. I don't care. I don't want it in our portfolio. Sell it. And you see that. I mean, we're seeing that maybe not every day, but definitely every week right now. As far as people that are in bigger organizations, they just don't want the headline risk. And we're seeing it in office in some respects as well now. So the interesting thing about retail or malls is that, yes, some of these malls are just going to be bulldozed and turned into multifamily other developments. Most offices are not going to be. So will there be downsizing for sure? Will there be some pain for sure? But a good building, newer building, um, a, and a good location in a good city is is going to still attract clients and will still, you know, maybe it won't have as much leverage as it used to, but it will be fine. And another stat is 40% of office leases don't roll over till 2030 and later. So that's still six and a half years away that, only, you know, in that in that six and a half years, yeah, 60% will roll, but 40% will not. So as Nick said, this is going to take a while to work itself out. And I think it's a great opportunity for us and our clients. Yeah, it seems like a very exciting opportunity that doesn't come around often. So let's dig into the last one before we kind of go into some closing here, which is asset-backed securities. John, you mentioned a lot at the beginning that yeah. asset backs can kind of be this catch-all. Yeah, and the asset back <laughs> um, market, which is about six or seven hundred billion, give or take, um, about a third of that is actually auto loans, which I think pretty much everybody is familiar with. What a lot of people think: whoever gives you that loan keeps that loan, and that's just not the case. If you get an auto loan, um, you and ten thousand other people. Uh, those loans are are basically sold and then packaged by someone in Wall Street and then sold to people like us. So, um, again, not scary whatsoever. Um, we we get line by line detail and we're looking at FICO scores, but a lot of other things, you know, uh, size of loan, uh, how long the loan is, how good this person is at paying off their loans, et cetera, et cetera. There's many, many variables that go into these. But you can become very well calibrated as to a pool of loans, how much will default. And if they do default, how much can we recover by going out and repoing that car and then selling that car in the secondary market? Um, and that's really the secret of success, kind of understanding those risk drivers. And it's really a statistical exercise. So the thing about um, aspects, yes, it's consumer and people are like, well, if we go in the recession and unemployment goes up, you know, that hurts the consumer. 
Correct. But like, again, we're still at 3.8% unemployment. And if you think about where we got in the GFC, north of 10%, where we got during COVID, north of 16%. And I get during COVID, there was all sorts of stimulus and things like that. But we're so far away from these stress scenarios that it gives us confidence as investors that things can get much, much, much worse. And these bonds will still be robust and pay us back. And yet the market is pricing them like it was COVID or almost like it was the GFC, very wide spreads. And to Nick's point, a lot of that is technicals, whereas last year money managers were getting withdrawals across the board, um, not huge, but a little bit here and there. And yet supply was still very strong in asset backs. And so that technical kind of drove spreads wider, but we love that because that's the market being inefficient. And this market is so inefficient. But like from our perspective, it's just a massive opportunity. And so what we do sit here and we talk about these securities every day and how we are going to allocate capital and the best place to do it. And I, you know, there's, I'm just trying to think in my career, I've been doing this way too long, over 30 years. And it's rare there's not a time where I'm like, this just is a great opportunity to be invested in securitized. Oh, thank you both for walking us through all things securitized. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope you came away with a better understanding of this sizable market and the opportunities that it can provide. For more episodes of Global Perspectives, download other episodes wherever you get your podcasts or visit JaniceHenderson.com. I've been your host for the day, Laura Castleton. Thanks. See you next time. loan obligations, or CLOs, are debt securities issued in different tranches, with varying degrees of risk, and backed by an underlying portfolio consisting primarily of below investment grade corporate loans. The return of principal is not guaranteed, and prices may decline if payments are not made timely or credit strength weakens. CLOs are subject to liquidity risk, interest rate risk, credit risk, call risk and the risk of default of the underlying assets. High yield or junk bonds involve a greater risk of default and price volatility and can experience sudden and sharp price swings. Mortgage-backed securities, MBS, may be more sensitive to interest rate changes. They are subject to extension risk, where borrowers extend the duration of their mortgages as interest rates rise, and prepayment risk, where borrowers pay off their mortgages earlier as interest rates fall. These risks may reduce returns. Securitized products, such as mortgage and asset-backed securities, are subject to prepayment and liquidity risk. Carry is the excess income earned from holding a high-yielding security relative to another. A collateralized debt obligation, CDO, is a complex structured finance product that is backed by a pool of loans and other assets and sold to institutional investors. Duration measures a bond price's sensitivity to changes in interest rates. The longer a bond's duration, the higher its sensitivity to changes in interest rates and vice versa. Quantitative tightening, QT, is a government monetary policy occasionally used to decrease the money supply by either selling government securities or letting them mature and removing them from its cash balances. Quantitative easing, or QE, is a government monetary policy occasionally used to increase the money supply by buying government securities or other securities from the market. The Secured Overnight Financing Rate, SOFR, is a broad measure of the cost of borrowing cash overnight collateralized by Treasury securities. Volatility measures risk using the dispersion of returns for a given investment. A yield curve plots the yields, interest rate, of bonds with equal credit quality but differing maturity dates. Typically bonds with longer maturities have higher yields. The views presented are as of the date published. They are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. 
Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, but not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration or example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janice Henderson Investors is a source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data sourced from third parties. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janice Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions, a. Europe by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, registration number 3594615, Janice Henderson Investors UK Limited, registration number 906355, Janice Henderson Fund Management UK Limited, registration number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited, registration number 2606646, each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopgate, London EC2M3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, and Janice Henderson Investors Europe SA. Registration number B22848, at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B, the US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janice Henderson Group PLC. C, Canada through Janice Henderson Investors US LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D, Singapore by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited, company registration number 199700782N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore. E, Hong Kong by Janice Henderson Investors, Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. F. South Korea by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, limited only to qualified professional investors, is defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its sub-regulations. G. Japan by Janice Henderson Investors, Japan, limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instrument business. H. Australia and New Zealand by Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, limited, ABN 47124279518, and its related bodies corporate including Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16165119531, AFSL 444266, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 43164177244, AFSL 444268, I, the Middle East by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office. This material relates to a financial product which is not subject to any form of regulation or approval by the Dubai Financial Services Authority, DFSA. The DFSA has no responsibility for reviewing or verifying any prospectus or other documents in connection with this financial product. Accordingly, the DFSA has not approved this material or any other associated materials nor taken any steps to verify the information set out in this material, and has no responsibility for it. The financial product to which this material relates may be illiquid and or subject to restrictions in its resale. Prospective purchasers should conduct their own due diligence on the financial product. If you do not understand the contents of this material you should consult an authorized financial advisor. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiries should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors and wholesale clients as defined by the applicable jurisdiction. Not for public viewing or distribution. Marketing communication. Janice Henderson and Knowledge Shared are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. C1023-53259. 103024 TL.